This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we have an extended conversation with veteran political theorist and activist Ilya Budryatskis, formerly based in Moscow and now a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley. We talked to Ilya about the nature of Putinism and the state of Russia more than a year after Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. Russia's cracked down on any expression of dissent at home, shut down independent media, imposed ridiculous censorship, and ramped up its crude propaganda. Ilya argues that the war has cemented a decades-long transformation of the Russian regime into a qualitative new form, an open, repressive dictatorship that borrows from the playbook of both Stalin and Hitler. Indeed, Ilya calls Putinism a form of fascism. We get his analysis when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm very pleased to have Ilya Budreitskis back with us. We're going to be discussing Russian politics, Putinism, the war in Ukraine, and almost anything that comes from that. Russia's invasion of Ukraine began over a year ago, and it caught nearly all observers by surprise. The idea of a full-scale war was unthinkable, and its stated aims of wiping out a country and eradicating its population were not just irrational, but really inconceivable. Russia's brutal exterminist war conduct has shocked the world, recalling war tactics from another time, the mass slaughter of World War I, making it seem as if history is running in reverse. Ukrainian resistance to Russia's imperial onslaught has made Russia double down on destruction since it cannot advance or accomplish its ill-stated war aims. Entire cities in Ukraine have been reduced to rubble. Russia has cracked down on dissent at home, has imposed ridiculous censorship and ramped up its crude propaganda. Millions have left the country to avoid being conscripted or because they oppose Putin's war. And the war has changed the trajectory of the 21st century and indeed the world. Putin's propaganda efforts at home to conceal the nature of the war have been undermined by his own need to mobilize hundreds of thousands to fight. And the increasingly draconian repression of anti-war sentiment, even the use of the word vaina or war, as well as the destruction of the independent media and the long prison sentences for any expression of opposition seem to come right out of Stalin's playbook. Today, we're going to speak to scholar activist Ilya Budreitskis, whose longstanding opposition to Putin's rule and this war forced him to leave the country. In recent articles, Ilya's argued that the war has initiated the transformation of the Russian regime into a qualitatively new form, a dictatorship, and Ilya calls Putinism a new form of fascism. In an interview published on the 17th of April in Medusa, Ilya also discusses left-wing politics in Russia during the war and how the left survives, or not, I guess is the question, under the extreme conditions of dictatorship. We're going to get his analysis, but welcome to the show, Ilya, and I just want to introduce you to the audience. Ilya Budreitskis is a political theorist and activist, previously based in Moscow. 
He recently joined University of California at Berkeley as a visiting scholar, and we're speaking to him today, stateside, as we say, in California. He writes regularly for Open Democracy, Republic.ru, Colta.ru, and other outlets. You should look them up. And his essay collection, Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia, was published by Verso in 2022, and I highly recommend it. He's a member of the editorial board of Postal Media and of the executive committee of the Moscow Sahara Center. So with all of that, Ilya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It's been a long-standing one, and you know, as we say, things got in the way of the ability of either one of us to do the interview. So I'm really looking forward to it, and especially, I guess, to begin with your characterization of this transformation of the political regime during the last year since Putin invaded Ukraine on February 24th, 2022. Yeah. So. So, in fact, just after the beginning of this uh, invasion, we saw very rapid uh, transformation of the political regime in Russia in some form of the open dictatorship. And the um, very important feature of this new regime is that, the, let's say, the mode of depolitization of the atomized uh, condition of the Russian society changed somehow. If before the war it was possible to stay out of politics in some way, and actually that was the main condition of most of Russians, so you should just stay away from any political activity, stay away from any political judgments, especially public judgments, and you can uh, somehow exist in a parallel reality from the state apparatus, from its politics and so on. So for now, it's not possible anymore. You should be 100% loyal. You should express your uh, loyalty to regime. And also any, let's say, opinion which is different from the official line is criminalized. So uh, from the beginning of last year, uh, there were already hundreds of criminal cases against not just activists, but ordinary people who express any opposition views, who call the war war and things like this. And uh, in fact, we, we see the development in this uh, direction. So this year started already much more intense in this direction. So we we had much more criminal cases like this. We had the brutal repressions against uh, all independent organizations, uh, groups that remained even to the beginning of this year. So, for example, you called me a member of executive of the Moscow Sakharov Center. So the Sakharov Center, which was one of the oldest human rights organizations in Russia, was banned. 
So now this organization does not exist. Uh, and Memorial was also banned? And Memorial was also banned and uh, various organizations even not exactly you know, related to the politics or to the human rights, like a lot of environmentalist organizations with the international links were banned. So we would definitely see the transformation of the Russian political regime and, of, and the Russian society as well. Well, I, I mean, this is really going to be a kind of a theme of what we're going to be speaking about in the next 40 minutes or so. And I want to go into it more deeply because you're talking about the worsening conditions for the expression of any political opinion for dissent, especially. And also, on the other hand, how the war has magnified many, many fold the repression that already existed, but now marks an all-out drive to eradicate any form of dissent. And we're seeing it, as you mentioned, Ilya, by the sentences that are meted out for those who at first just, you know, because at the beginning of the war, there was 40,000 people in the streets protesting the war, and then it got increasingly draconian sentences in jail. Maybe in the beginning, I think it was 10 or 15 days, and then it's turned into years, and now we're seeing the arrest of prominent liberal dissidents and others. Now there's a new trial for Navalny, the arrest of Karamoza, the Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich's arrest and long sentences. These are not left-wing, you know, the kind of revolutionary opponents of the regime, but nonetheless those who are speaking. And there's something else that you said in discussing these draconian sentences and changes is that the society is now further atomized and can't express any political opinion. I want to go into that a little bit more, but maybe we should first just talk about the, you know who's being arrested and what these sentences signal for the rest of the population. So, by the way, I know personally Evan Gershkovich because um, in some strange way, some probably five years ago when he was working for the Moscow Times, he made an interview with, with me as well as with other scholars about the uh, Marx ideas in Russia. So he, uh-huh. was, uh, he was interested in how Marx now are like perceived in the, in the Russian society and, and so on. I can say that uh, he's a kind of left-wing, but the main tone of his uh, interview was a kind of sympathetic. Uh, but anyway, the arrest of Vladimir Karamurza, who was just answered to uh, 25 years of prison, it happened la- last year. So he was arrested just months after the start of the invasion. And then he was waiting for the trail, which ended with this uh, terrible result. And basically, this 25 years summarized his activity as oppositioner, as anti-war, kind of public speaker against the war. And definitely this storm, uh, this draconian storm, marked kind of new level of repressions in Russia, because definitely that is something that could be compared with the practices of Stalinism, of the Great Terror, and so on. But even in the cases of the, let's say, ordinary people, like the people who just express 
I don't know, some concerns about about the war who uh, like positively characterized Zelensky, for example. I, I just just read about the case about the old lady in some provincial town who said to her friends <laughs> in some kind of cafe that Zelensky is a nice person and she personally liked uh, his jokes. So all these other ladies, they immediately reported to the security, to the FSB and so on. And this lady was accused for the discreditation of the Russian army or something like this. So even for the posts in the public, in the social media, you now can have like one, two, three years of prison. And this is a reality for Russia now. Of course, you can say that it is a mass terror, as it was in the late uh, 30s under, under Stalin, when uh, during one year, more than 800,000 people were arrested. Of course, we, we have no such numbers in, in Russia for now, because the main aim of these repressions is not to arrest all <laughs> people who could be accused for, for something, but to install this uh, kind of atmosphere of fear in the society. And it is very important that many of the cases now, of these criminal cases, they started because of the reports from other people. So like in the universities, in the workplaces, some people, they are ready to report <laughs> to authorities about, well, we have this kind of national traitor, we have the guy who express some, you know, opposition and opinions and so on. And that is also a very important element of the condition of the Russian society. I think it's really interesting that you brought that up. And of course, when I said that these repressions come out of Stalin's playbook, I wasn't meaning that there was mass terror. It's not massive, but the sentences are draconian and sending a message. And then there's also something else I'd love to hear your thoughts about. And that's, you know, almost everyone remarks about the level of apoliticization, more than even depoliticization that exists among Russian people. They, in order to survive, prefer not to have any political opinions, neither for nor against, but just to not bother with it. But of course, if pushed, they will express support for the war or for anything that's going on in order not to have any trouble. And so there's that sort of... I don't know, legacy of fear or something that's been reignited. And I'd like you to comment on that. I think when um, I interviewed uh, Boris Kagalitsky earlier in the war about the new polls that showed a very high level of support for the war, he said, well, you know, of course, you can't believe the polls and most people have no opinion, either pro or against. They just prefer not to think about it because thinking about it gets them into trouble. Yes, I, I agree with this justification of the Russian society for now, because in fact, if you come to Moscow now, you will experience some kind of strange atmosphere of normality. Yeah. So, so people are laughing, they're sitting in the in restaurants, they're doing their normal life, but some things are forbidden. There are some exact topics which are not possible to discuss, and everyone is okay with it. And of course, there is uh, one main <laughs> figure of silence. There is that uh, basically the country is uh, in the condition of war. 
And the same, the same you have with all these um, opinion polls where people simply want to get rid of any kind of talks about uh, politics, about making any judgments about the current situation. So uh, that's why I don't think that this current opinion polls somehow reflect the real opinions uh, about the war in, uh, in Russian society. They simply mirror <laughs> this loyalty that is needed to express. There's another thing as well, and that is, you know, we were talking about the differences, say, from the Stalin period of mass terror, which also had show trials of, you know, those who they could manage to uh, force to confess to absurd crimes. And it seems to me that the sentencing of Gerskovich or Karamursa or even Navalny, you know, these are not really trials. These are just sort of... I don't know. They're just spectacles of long sentences without any ability to hear any of the arguments, you know, for or against. They just they just seem to have a sentence handed down and they show them in a cage and then it's over. And I'm just wondering, do you see that as a sort of further warning for people that these are prominent figures? But nonetheless, if anyone were to speak out, they would suffer the exact same fate. Yes, I, I will say that during the Stalin's uh, terror, there were two elements of this, um, two sides of this uh, story. So one was definitely this public spectacular trails, but the other was the hundreds of thousands of cases where uh, there were no trails. Right. Where people were judged only by this uh, so-called troika. So mm -hmm. basically they remained in prison and just get the paper with some result of this trail. So in fact, I think that this very practice of the closed trails that we see with Karamurza or with some other political uh, prisoners is mostly related to this side of <laughs> Stalinist uh, practice. And I think it's very important that uh, people who are a kind of open dissidents, who openly oppose the regime, they have to know that they will have no any publicity on these trails, that there will be no place for uh, you know, addresses to the Russian society, no possibility to, to express their views and to use the trail as a kind of public space. And uh, that is very true for these recent trails, like trail of Vladimir Karamurza, where even the lawyer was not allowed to present. Yeah, and uh, I think that many people outside outside Russia they simply don't fully understand this kind of condition, where basically you have no any right uh, to defend yourself. There is no such thing as defense on these trails. And by the way, it is interesting that this lawyer of Vladimir Karamurza, who was firstly not allowed to fully present in the trail, then he got some warnings from the judge or from some officials that he will be expelled from this lawyer's community and also that he will be probably arrested. So this guy, he already left the country. <laughs> and that is not the only case against the lawyers. So during the last year, many lawyers who were active during all these trails against anti-war activists uh, and so on, they had to leave. 
because they're also under the danger of arrest. So in this sense, uh, that also reminds a kind of a Stalinist trails, because even in uh, Brezhnev times, let's say in the late Soviet period, the trails against dissidents, for example, were more designed as, let's say, a legal process. For now, the, the law is like totally broken. That is just a pure political will coming from the top. And the very nature of these trails based on some kind of what was called in Nazi Germany phenomenological law. So it means that, that you're accused for not what you have done, but who you are. So we know that you are traitor, that you are enemy, that you are Jewish or something. Uh, so that is the reason why you got this. Uh, uh, and I'm wondering as well, Ilya, if there's any sort of hierarchy of repression in that certain people are more subject to repression because they're more well-known or not. This is important, I think, because I'd like you to explain for our audience how you see, say, the politics of Karamurza or Navalny. It seems to me like there's been a lot of discussion about this, and you and I first discussed on the air about whether or not the left should participate in the demonstrations supporting Navalny back when many others were saying, well, he's, you know, had all these nationalist impulses and he's a liberal and not representing the, the sort of same politics that the left has, but I guess you would have to say, and I think you do in this article, that it was inspector about fascism, that Navalny's videos, which have been seen by hundreds of millions around the world, and in Russia too, are more than just a devastating expose and critique of Putin, but also of the, as you say, the wholesale theft of the country's wealth. And he's also, of course, stood up as a symbol, a courageous symbol of opposition. So I'm wondering, does that make him more dangerous than almost anyone else? Or is it just simply that Putin will brook no dissent? So the first thing is that uh, now we face a common new trail against Navalny, right. uh, which will start uh, quite soon, uh, maybe next month. And he will be accused uh, for leading the extremist organization. So the whole network that supported him uh, already labeled as extremist and forbidden. And probably he will get the new sentence after this uh, trail up to uh, 35 years. Yes, so... Uh, so that's a new level of uh, accusation against him. And definitely he's a symbol. He is a symbol of a person who openly, without any kind of restrictions, accused Putin for accumulation of uh, power in dictatorial uh, manner uh, for the start of the war and so on. So definitely the result of this coming uh, trail uh, will be symbolic. And, uh, of course, from today, from the current situation, retrospectively, it became quite clear that all these mobilizations were not about personality of Navalny, were not about corruption, but about how to stop this, this tendency, how to stop the state on its way to the full repressive dictatorship. Well, let's go into that a little bit more, because your article that is published in Spectre, it's a journal of the left here in the U.S., is called Putinism as a New Form of Fascism. 
And I was going to ask you, you know, to more elaborate a little bit more of the parallels with fascism. We've been talking about the parallels with Stalinism, which I think are marked and really do express, especially in the level of atomization that's being enforced on the society, a continuation in a sense of Stalin's politics, uh, which is to atomize all opposition and to wipe out any form of social solidarity so that people are atomized into individual units against the state and dependent on the state for absolutely everything. It's changed, of course, because the economic system has changed, but there's a lot of things that are pretty similar. And I'm wondering, I guess, to begin this discussion, how you see Putin's evolution into this form of dictatorship, because many people didn't see it that way. And when he came to power at the turn of the millennium, he was appointed and anointed, you could say, by Yeltsin, who, you know, before he resigned, he apologized at that famous New Year's Eve, the time of the millennium address, where he promised a higher standard of living and failed. And then in comes this efficient, young, new, you know, leader uh, that no one had really heard of. And people saw things improve in the first instance because wages that had been in arrears for maybe a year or more were paid and the economic situation soon began to improve. And I'm wondering whether or not the signs that were there early on, for example, Putin's first war, the war in Chechnya, which we saw carpet bombing of Grozny, the capital, brutal war conduct. And then, as you rightly point out in your articles, the introduction of a new labor code, which curtailed the rights of unions and contributed to the crumbling of uh, solidarity and the further atomization of the society. So were these signs missed? And now you look in retrospect, or how do you characterize Putin's evolution? Yes, very good question. And probably I will start with these differences and comparisons with uh, Stalinism, because definitely you can see some elements of the old uh, Stalinist practices in the state apparatus. So what has remained from Stalinism is the tradition of the state apparatus and especially the tradition of the security but of the social foundation for this is totally, totally different. And the society is totally different. And of course, Putin is a kind of very unique product of the boss, of the continuation of the tradition of Stalinist and post-Stalinist state apparatus and the neoliberal extreme market transformation of the Russian society uh, happened from the 90s. So in this uh, sense, uh, he presents like a kind of synthesis uh, in in Hegelian sense of these two elements, the, let's say, Soviet and Mm -hmm. anti-Soviet, extreme pro-market and Stalinist elements of the Soviet state apparatus. When he came to power, he immediately reproduced both tendencies on one side, the continuation of so-called market reforms. And what I just pointed out in in my article, that neoliberalization of the Russian society, of the Russian state, became much more systemic during Putin's rule than during Yeltsin's time. 
But in the same time, the tendency, which was clear from the very beginning of his rule, was the strengthening of the state apparatus, the growth of influence of the police, of the security of FSB, former KGB, and so on. And definitely the Second War in Chechnya was very much related to this trend. By the way, as I pointed in my article, this tendency, this neoliberalism plus authoritarian conservative uh, turn of the state, in that moment would very share some uh, similarities with uh, the situation in the U.S., for example, during the Bush administration, during this crusade against so-called Islamic terrorism. And uh, in this way, the international terrorism was labeled as the main kind of danger against Russian state. So it was mentioned in all the national security doctrines and so on. And in this way, it somehow mirrored the American Mm -hmm. neoconservative approach. So, of course, there there are various uh, factors which turn Putin's authoritarian neoliberal Russia out of this uh, sphere of uh, influence, of this friendly relations with the United States. And I don't want to go too much in it, but I think that the reason why this regime moved from some kind of more uh, depoliticized, technocratic way of operating of the state to some kind of the open, aggressive dictatorship. The main reason was the growing resistance. So, in fact, during the last <clears throat> the last decade before the war, we saw a kind of double movement. We saw like two parallel tendencies: the growth of politicization of some exact parts of the Russian society, and at the same time, the growth of very aggressive, uh, repressive answer to this kind of politicization. And the current regime and its current form is the result of this, uh, let's say, victory uh, of the state over the society. This is really interesting because what I'm hearing, you know, and I know that this is part of the way that you develop your arguments, Ilya, in terms of characterizing Putinism, this full-fledged repressive dictatorship, as a form of fascism. And you go into many reasons why you use the F word for fascism. And I'm also hearing, though, here where you see all of the similarities with Stalinism, which, you know, many people at the time, you know, there was books written about the the origins of totalitarianism and characterizing both the twin dictatorships of the 20th century, Stalinism and Nazism, as these mirror images of each other. Of course, one belonged to the capitalist system and one did not. So there were essential differences as well. But in terms of seeing any form of opposition as a mortal threat, This is certainly common to both of them and common to Putin. And you just raised the issue of the specter of this kind of mass opposition. We saw the demonstrations against what we call it sham democracy in 2011 and 12. Then we see the repression of the movement and especially the leading figure of Navalny. And then, of course, you know, the other issues that you bring up, and I mentioned earlier, the labor code and and these other forms. And then I guess we would add to that 
the specter of the Maidan revolution in Ukraine, where I've never seen so much mischaracterization and distortion of who was involved and what that represented, as if, I guess you could say for Brezhnev, the specter of the Prague Spring meant that he had to crack down at home lest there would be any sentiment at home against the status quo. And here we see the same thing with the Maidan. So clearly, Putin is not going to allow any form of opposition, but you're showing in a way how successful he is at it in a way. So I, I guess I want you to just elaborate there and then talk a little bit how you decided to see this as a form of fascism. Yeah, of course, the fascism is is a very complicated term, and I think we can't reduce it to some exact uh, form of ideology, or we can't reduce it to a form of the mass movement, because uh, we saw a lot of examples in uh, history, even in the history of classical uh, fascism in the mid-20th century, when the um, fascization came not from below, not from the mass movement, but from the top, from the traditional uh, elites, like it was in, in Spain, for example, during Franco and in some other countries, and even in the cases of Germany or Italy, we can't imagine this uh, installation of uh, fascist regimes there without any support, consolidated support of the old state apparatus, of the old elites for uh, such a term. So in this sense, I think this turn from the top is crucial, uh, so the, the most important element of fascism, and fascism should be described mostly as a form of political regime. And the aim of this political regime is the total control over the society. The control, which means not just the alienation of the masses from any democratic participants, but (laughs) as a, a kind of new condition of the society where all the people included as the atomized individuals into machinery of the state, of the economy, of the military, and so on and so forth. So people exist only as a kind of source, yeah, a kind of material mm-hmm. uh, in the hands of the state. And that is exactly what happened during the classical fascism. And that is the kind of thing that we experienced now, but of course in the totally different global situation. And we should remember that these tendencies somehow reflect the destruction of the society, which already happened with the, all uh, the neoliberal uh, transformations. Uh, mm. in, in various uh, ways in, in Russia, in, in the West, in the, in the global South, and so on and so forth. So all this kind of right-wing uh, populists, all kind of uh, new authoritarian regimes in various countries, they reflect this uh, new, let's say, anthropological situation. A situation where a kind of new moral type of individuality was uh, created by uh, the radical neoliberal market uh, transformation of these societies. Well, I think it's really important that you, I guess, dare to use the F word, the fascist word. 
to kind of modernize or to at least bring up to the 21st century a kind of new form because in some ways it's a degradation of what the earlier form was. And, you know, I've always, along with many, many others, argued that class fascism was unique and pertained to a unique set of circumstances. And I always liked what Clara Zetkin called fascism. She said it was the punishment inflicted on the proletariat for not successfully extending the revolution of 1917. So if you don't, you have a mass working class movement. If it doesn't succeed, then it gets fascism in this extreme form because it's such a threat. And then you look at Russia and you look at Putin and, you know, on the one hand, you can't compare the level of corruption of the Putin regime to, say, the fascist leader or the Stalinist leader. It's it's at a whole nother level of the theft of society, even in, even to the extent, I guess maybe this has a parallel with Stalin in terms of war conduct that Putin surrounds himself with cronies who only are yes men. And so he didn't really seem to know the state of his own military or the state of theft of the military budget. And so just assumed that he could storm into Kiev and just and overtake it within three days or something. So all of that was wrong. But then going back to what, let's say, 2011 and 12 represented for Putin. And then in 2014, you know, the Maidan. So there's this incipient opposition, even though it was not, you know, like the classical working class socialist opposition, but nonetheless, it's opposition. And there's no room for opposition for Putin. There's just no room whatsoever. And it has to be destroyed. So we do see that. And then the other side of it, I'm just sort of laying it all out there, was that living standards have stagnated since 2012. Before that, Putin could be popular because he was the anti-Yeltsin, he paid wages and then uh, lived off oil and gas revenues. So people's living standards really did go up and they had high expectations. And then, of course, nothing since 2011-12. And then, you know, that sort of is most of it. So I guess I just want you to continue to describe this this newer form that seems like a degradation, because so much of it is about Putin protecting his own wealth and his own power. Yes, uh, it's a very big topic. And of course, there are a, a lot of observers. They exactly stress the incompetence of the Russian military, the bad governance in Russia, that this all lead their cronies and so on. But I think uh, I, I'm a bit skeptical to it <laughs> because we saw that this regime is somehow very uh, successful in the, in the managing of domestic affairs and the managing of the, of, uh, let's say, the, the Russian economy. Yeah, because uh, even uh, under the sanctions, during this huge shock that Russian uh, economy experienced after the start of the war, it was somehow balanced. It was balanced, of course, in the way that it was not possible in, uh, let's say, in democratic countries, because people will be probably dissatisfied when uh, state declared that they will frozen all of their uh, bank accounts and all the foreign currency for half a year or something. But in Russia, it's, it's okay, it, it worked. And in fact, the main part of the state apparatus, which played this kind of very competent, very, very important role in this 
in this uh, stabilization where exactly there are people who could be labeled as the uh, neoliberals. So the people from, from the central bank, from uh, the Ministry of Economy and so on. So all these people who used to be a kind of liberal fraction of the regime, they became the core element of the stability of this regime. And that is very important, that the current uh, Putin's rule would be impossible without this uh, kind of neoliberal uh, technocrats that managed uh, the economy, especially the economy in the times of war. So in this sense, we still see the, the both elements of this regime, which were there from the very beginning, the repressive apparatus and this kind of neoliberal technocratic fractions of the state apparatus, which not just coexist with each other, but which together form some kind of balance for this regime, which is impossible without each of these elements. Well, I guess in the moments that we have left in this discussion, Ilya Budraitskis, I want to talk about the opposition to Putin. And of course, you've been a longtime opponent, not just of Putin, but of the system that you're describing that has come to be under him. Putin earlier, as maybe needed to stress, was popular because he was the anti-Yeltsin and living standards went up, but they have stagnated. And I think it sort of came to a head in 2021 in the parliamentary elections when the results were reversed and the election was stolen. And this was widely seen as cheating on Putin's part. And then you saw with the beginning of the war, as shocking as the war was and, and a surprise, most people didn't think that he would do this. You saw the opposition to the war, and then you saw a mass exodus of people who were leaving Russia, and some characterize it as a brain drain. And I'm wondering if you can describe what kind of opposition exists, not at the level of these figures that we're now seeing on trial or you know, facing 10, 20, 30 years in prison, but at the level of those who you know will go out in the street or belong to either anarchists or Trotskyists or social democrats, the kind of opposition that did exist. But the question, I guess, is does it still or have they mostly left the country? And what do you see in terms of the future? And I should just say one more thing, you know, to allow you to frame it, that many people see no good solution for Putin or this war, and that, in fact, it's accelerating the disintegration of the country that was begun with the disintegration of the Soviet Union. So I'd like, that's a big question, but maybe you can, yeah, go ahead. It's a big question, but I will probably uh, stress a few points. So the first is that uh, definitely the kind of dissatisfaction with the monopolization of power, with the lack of democratic representation, with the social injustice. It was growing. And that was one of the main reasons why Putin started this invasion, because that immediately solved all the problems for his kind of legitimacy. Because in the situation of war, you should side with your own uh, country. To be against your government is to be on the side of your external enemy. Mm-hmm. And that is the rule that is working basically in every kind of national state, and especially, of course, in the authoritarian states. And uh, also to the second point, 
that, let's say, the price for the expression of your disagreement became too much high after the start of the war. Because now there is no any kind of legal ways to express your kind of disagreement. So not through the vote, not through some, even some sharing of the public opinion and your own social media and so on. So any sort of disagreement became a kind of heroic act. Uh, Mm. So you should be ready to be punished. You should be ready to go to prison if you want to do this. And uh, of course, that is only a very tiny minority of the society who is ready for some kind of moral reasons for this kind of sacrifice. I'm pretty sure that in American society, if all the possible ways of, you know, legal expression of the disagreement with the government will be criminalized, there will be only maybe a few thousand people who will be ready to sacrifice all of their life, all the life of their families and so on, just to express the disagreement with their government. So something like this, you have already in Russia. That is the reality for Russia now. And of course, all the various oppositionist and especially left-wing political groups who have this clear anti-war stance, they operate somehow in the underground or they try to establish some forms which are still uh, legal. Yeah, for example, you can uh, meet uh, in the apartment of someone and discuss the current situation or discuss some texts from Marx or something like this. Yes, so that is the way to reproduce the, let's say, the community. That is the way to recruit maybe some other individuals. And that is the way to work for, for the future. Because I am sure that there is no way for existence of such a regime for decades Some crisis will come sooner or later. It will come because of the military defeat. It will come because of some internal crisis. Uh, So we can't say it for now, but this work is extremely important for this future. We have to work for the alternatives for, for our country after the end of this regime. So I guess I have one final question, Ilya, and that is that, you know, the process that you describe. And what you just finished saying that, you know, you don't know what it maybe it'll take the military defeat to destroy Putinism. And it seems like, you know, this takes us back to the beginning because the war just seemed so extreme and Putin has undermined so much and created the opposite, you know, effect of what he wanted, including the strengthening of NATO, the Ukrainian resistance being seen positively by the world, the increasing isolation of Russia and economic consequences. It just seems like it was such a blunder, and yet he's in it. And I guess you could say decisions have consequences, that his decisions set in motion a process which I asked whether you see it as a disintegrative process. I guess I'm asking you to speculate on the end of Putinism and what it would take. Others have said this is the end of Russia. I think in one interview uh, with Kagerlitsky said, yeah, it's the, he will have destroyed Russia, but hopefully, you know, after a new one will emerge and hopefully a socialist and democratic Russia. So, yes, I agree. What, what are your views? 
<laughs> I just want to repeat this famous <laughs> Gramsci phrase about the pessimism of the mind and optimism of the will. So probably this uh, Kogarlitsky mm-hmm. words uh, there about the, the second, because uh, pessimistically, <laughs> I think that this war, I mean, not the general conflict between Russia, Ukraine, post-Soviet space, the West, and so on. But exactly this war could end by some temporary ceasefire and will freeze the current situation. Of course, everyone uh, are wondering about the perspective of Ukrainian offensive, but it is very much uh, possible that the current situation will be frozen. And it will mean that this regime that exists in Russia will also be will frozen. Yes, mm. it will uh, survive. It will definitely continue and uh, strengthen its uh, repressive politics inside the country. So the struggle against internal enemies will become the, the most important, the main front line. And also it will mean the further social and economic degradation of, of the country. But uh, also this uh, kind of situation could provoke some crisis of the elites, which could combine with some popular disagreements, popular uprisings, and so on, because, uh, of course, already uh, hundreds of thousands Russians were on this war. There are thousands being killed, thousands seriously wounded, and so on. And uh, you already have this kind of scarves in the Russian society, which would provoke some kind of opposition, which uh, could take new forms, different from uh, what we had before the war. It could be the protests on the local level, uh, the protests from the ethnic uh, minorities in various forms. So, for example, during the last two months, uh, there were a number of reports that uh, something is going on in the Northern Caucasus again some kind of Islamist underground still exists. And definitely uh, these kind of tendencies will develop because uh, now ordinary Russians have uh, much more, uh, let's say, uh, weapons, <laughs> illegal weapons because of this war. And uh, many people have the war experience. Uh, so that means mm. that all this will play some role in the disintegration of uh, this regime, but uh, also it means that the forms of their resistance could be very different from the expected movement towards the socialist democratic society that Boris Kogarlitsky is is waiting for. But of course, we hope that this direction is also possible, especially because the social injustice and the huge inequality the Russian society still remain one of the most important, most kind of striking things for Russians. I'm really glad that you mentioned that at the end, Ilya, because in your article you stated, and it seems to be the truth, that even those who dare not express a political opinion are in full agreement that they're opposed to this social inequality and this vast concentration of wealth at the top and no one else. And so there's a huge wellspring of, let's say, potentiality there. And on the other hand, we know through history that brutal repression works for a while, but it can't continue to work. And at some point, we'll find opposition spring from below. This is sort of like a law of nature in a way. So 
I can't ex- ask you to look any further into a crystal ball for the future, but I want to invite you back to discuss it as these developments unfold. And thank you so much, Ilya, for sharing your analysis and your thoughts. I want to encourage the listeners to go out and look at your article. First of all, look at your book, Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia that came out last year by Verso, but also the article that appeared in Spectre, which is calling Putinism a new form of fascism. And Ilya is not just a uh, former long-term scholar and activist, but he had to leave Moscow shortly after the war began and has recently joined the University of California, Berkeley, as a visiting scholar. You can find um, Google him, but you can find his articles at Open Democracy, at, at many different outlets, including Republic, Colta, and other forms. Just do a Google. Ilya, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. <laughs>